You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Lindsay Wardell, creator of the open source projects Elm View Bridge and Vit Elm Template. We get into some less often discussed differences between object-oriented programming and functional programming, among other topics. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my and Lindsay's employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, functional and object-oriented programming. All right, I'm here with Lindsay Wardell. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So I know you as someone who is a prominent member of the Elm community and also like really into Vue.js. And most people who come into Elm are coming from a React background. That's like by far the most common place that people get into Elm from. And I also know that some people will be into React and then they get into Elm. And then usually one of two things happens. Either they say, you know what? I actually, I don't like this. I want to go back to what I was doing before. Or they move over and say, you know what? I really like Elm. I don't like React anymore and I'll stop doing that. Occasionally you get somebody uh, likes both, but it's, it's mostly people sort of pick one and stick with it. But you're maybe the only person I know who is like into Elm and also still into Vue. Like you like both of them. I think that's interesting. And I'm kind of curious to just what got you into Vue? What got you into Elm? And like, what do you like about them? So let me back up from the beginning. When I was getting into front-end web development, and when I say that, I already had years of fun experience with HTML, CSS. I tinkered with PHP, never really built any applications. But when I was getting into JavaScript and front-end development, this was in like 2017, 2018, I started with just straight JavaScript, which is painful. (laughs) But a lot better than I remembered because I remember JavaScript before in 2006, 2007, but in, in the early days. And I thought it was a horrendous language and never wanted to touch it. And I think I was right. But at this, <laughs> point, it's, at this point, it's fun to some extent. But as I was getting into that, then I discovered jQuery. And I'm doing all of these discoveries in quick succession. I started with JavaScript. And then like a month later, I rewrote the entire app into jQuery. And then a month later, I decided jQuery's out. We can't do this anymore. What am I going to use? So let me pause there. So why was jQuery out? What's wrong with jQuery? I, I like jQuery. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was FOMO more than anything. I didn't mind working with it. The big issue I ran into was specifically I had functions that were rendering modals and rendering certain content into the modals. I had all of this templating in JavaScript using template strings that jQuery was in charge of. And I felt like this is fine, but it's not great. It's not going with the grain of what jQuery is supposed to be doing is what I felt. Okay, so so FOMO, not in the sense of like, there's a shiny new thing on Hacker News that I got to try, but rather in the sense of like, I feel like I'm missing out on an opportunity to do better than this. Yes, absolutely. And as I was looking around and building this app, I started looking for different kinds of components. And one of them was a calendar widget because I needed a calendar. Classic, yeah. And I was dealing with Internet Explorer at the time, which did not offer anything. Also classic. It's so great. (laughs) I found a React component that gave you a calendar dropdown. And I looked at it and said, okay, this is called React. I don't think that's compatible with jQuery. Moved on with life. (laughs) Eventually, I came back to it. And I was thinking, okay, jQuery, I'm doing all of these template strings with HTML in them. And I'm changing all of this DOM stuff. There's got to be a library or a framework, or I didn't have these terms. There's got to be something like jQuery 
that is actually intended for this kind of work. I should note at this point, I had already purchased on Udemy during the previous Black Friday sale a whole slew of courses on React, Angular, Vue. I didn't know anything about JavaScript, so I picked up Node and I picked up Electron because I was like, they're JavaScript. I must need to know what they are. Uh, That's accurate. They are. (laughs) Uh, They are indeed JavaScript. Yeah. (laughs) So as I was looking at this and I was processing this information that I'd found, I realized I probably need one of these things that I had a course on and just hadn't started yet. Because I had found React already, I started with React and I started following the course and building whatever app the video was calling for. By the way, shout out to Maximilian Schwarzmuller. He runs Academind. He has a ton of courses on Udemy as well as a lot of free videos on YouTube and his own website. So I highly recommend looking him up if you are interested in learning JavaScript in any of the frameworks. He also goes on to tangents about Laravel and stuff. So just shout out to Maximilian. But I was following his React course, and I was able to follow along. I could understand what he was doing and why he was writing the code he was writing. But none of it clicked. None of it made sense. It was, as the React community likes to say, it's just JavaScript, except for the JSX. And (laughs) it did not click in my head. I could not follow along to the point that I could write my own code comfortably. Okay, so it's like each individual lesson makes sense in isolation, but you're not getting the mental model, like the bigger picture. It's just not not working for you. And at that point, I gone a bit into this course, and I, I had some understanding of the ecosystem at this point, because the, the course was talking about Vue and Angular, and I was able to piece together what things look like at the time. And I just started looking up the other ones, because this isn't making sense. Maybe one of the other frameworks will. So I looked at Angular and it felt incredibly bloated and large. And I didn't like having the multiple files that stitched together in some magical way. It didn't feel right. And then I looked at Vue and Vue was nice because it offered a single file component that just uses HTML tags. Like it has an HTML section, a script section, and a style section. You can scope the styles to that particular component or not. The JavaScript was, at the time, it was just the options API. JavaScript was organized into very understandable sections. There was your data, there was your computer properties, there were the methods, there were the lifecycle hooks. The HTML was basically just HTML with a few extra directives for looping and if statements. And at that point, it felt like the PHP that I had experienced on the back end, but for front end work. And that model just clicked a lot more. Got it. So this is interesting because the way that you went about trying out these different alternatives, I think is the way that a lot of library authors wish that people would go about evaluating alternatives, which is to actually like sit down and try like one at a time, all the main alternatives and then like evaluate them and decide which one you like best and then go with that. But I think in practice, that's pretty rare. I think usually what's what's much more common is somebody's one of two things happens. Either they're looking for something new and they hear about something, whether it's on Hacker News or Twitter or a friend or something says, hey, you should check out Blah. And they're like, oh, I'll check out Blah. Okay. And you try it and then you decide you either like it or don't. And then you either keep looking or you know, you're like, oh, I, I like this. Okay, done. I'm going to go with that. Or what is I, I suspect more common is they get a new job and whatever they're using at the new job, that's what they learn. And then they form an opinion about it that way. But I, I wonder, like, what percentage of people actually sit down and try 
for whatever motivation, like all of the major alternatives, <laughs> like technologies in a given space. I, I personally, I don't think I've ever done that. So kudos to you for actually like evaluating alternatives seriously. <laughs> Having listened to a few of your talks, I'll give you credit between CoffeeScript to React to Elm. You did look at those alternatives and made some judgments there as well. Well, I wasn't systematic about it. I mean, I started off with I was doing JavaScript like you, and then I heard about CoffeeScript and I'd heard some cool things and it seemed like the learning curve was was very gentle. So it was like a weekend thing. I was like, oh, I'm just going to try this out. And I liked it and I stuck with it. And then React came out. I only ended up trying Angular because I was specifically asked on a particular project at the company I was working for at the time, they were like, hey, we want to <laughs> coincidentally move away from jQuery and towards, they just said a framework. So find a framework and go with it. And honestly, I picked Angular just because React wasn't out at the time. This was like 2011 or something like that. So the alternatives are like Angular, Backbone JS, Knockout JS, and I'm sure there's one other that I'm forgetting, but Angular had the nicest documentation. So I kind of went with that, <laughs> but I didn't really like give a serious try to like backbone or knockout and then similarly with react like when react came out i saw the the video of whatever that js conf was like 2013 and i was like oh wow i was really into functional programming and they're like render is a pure function i was like yes i'm interested and again never never tried out like i don't know if you was out at that point i mean you would probably know do you remember what year you came out i want to say 2014 or 2015 was its original release it was after react yeah. Okay. Okay. But at the time, I mean, it was definitely like Angular was kind of the the big thing, like Angular one. But I again never really tried any alternatives. It's like this sounds cool. Let me try it. And I guess the closest I kind of came was like, I guess no, not I, I can't even say pure script in Elm because at the time I was like cheerleading for pure script because I was like, oh, this seems like like I was into Roy, this like language that Brian McKenna made back in the day. The chronology is like Roy came out first, then pure script came out, and then Elm came out. Well, actually, Elm and PureScript, I'm not sure which one came out first, but certainly when I first looked at Elm, it was like only for games. You couldn't really do any DOM stuff. Like I didn't have a virtual DOM yet. And then when I did finally like end up on Elm, it was like right when they announced that. But yeah, I mean, I really was just like, I, I want to try to do this like pure functional programming in the browser because I'd been convinced by a, a friend who really liked Haskell that I should try it. And yeah, never really evaluated any of those alternatives. It was just like, oh, well, Roy's the only game in town. And then Brian McKenna didn't end up finishing it they're like getting a getting a working release going because he couldn't get the row polymorphism working if i remember right and then i saw pure script i was like oh this is like the spiritual successor to roy great let's go compile to javascript pure functional programming and then while waiting for that to get a virtual dom like react elm got one and i was like okay this so there really was i i, I can't say like my entire front-end experience that i ever actually sat down and evaluated multiple options <laughs> like by trying them out like you did i'm gonna tangent a little bit only a little. You mentioned Elm being designed originally for games. After I'd used Vue at work for an extended period, I decided, well, okay, React is the most popular thing. I should probably learn it too, just in case I need it for a job or somebody asked me about it. So I was thinking, I was like, what am I going to build? What am I going to do to learn this? Because that tutorial did not make sense. I could not follow along. It wasn't fun. It wasn't engaging. I couldn't grasp what was going on. But at this point, I did have an idea of building reactive systems because Vue provides that same kind of reactivity. Using my knowledge of Vue, I decided to learn React by building a game. I remember I was doing the dishes at the time, thinking, what am I going to build? What am I going to do? 
this basic concept of a game popped into my head. It's a it's going to be a nine by nine grid. There's going to be towns. There's going to be castle, and you just move units around in a turn based strategy type way. Kind of just a very basic thing. Nothing nothing too intense. And I decided that's what I'm going to build in React. I worked on that project for let's say a month. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but that was the thing I was doing. It was what I was most focused on. And it worked. I learned React. I felt comfortable enough with it that at my next job, I was I was writing Next.js to build the application using all React and TypeScript. That pattern of making a game and a technology I want to use is what led me eventually into Elm. So I wrote that version in React, but I, I got trapped. I coded myself into a corner, which wasn't a problem. It was just a fun project. It wasn't a big deal. But I felt like I couldn't refactor well enough, so I needed TypeScript. So I rewrote the entire thing in a pure TypeScript engine that I could run as a CLI or plug it into React or plug it into Svelte or plug it into Vue, whatever. So I could have that core and then I get to experiment with different frameworks. So I made a Svelte version after the TypeScript version where I just imported the TypeScript library and life went on. It was great. But that didn't work for Elm because Elm is Elm. It's not TypeScript. It's not JavaScript. And I felt really silly about the idea of, I'm just going to run my TypeScript core and send everything in via ports. That that didn't feel spiritually like what Elm is all about. So I rewrote the entire engine in Elm based on the TypeScript version. That's what got me into Elm. Originally, I'd heard about Elm, I think it was through a JS Party episode where they interviewed a few folks and the description of Elm was TypeScript on hard mode. <laughs> I heard that and was like, challenge accepted. Let's do this. And then I spent months just trying to figure out how to get random numbers to generate a grid. Oh, wow. Interesting. It wasn't a big problem. Like, I, Occasionally, I'd just be like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to figure it out. I want this. The functional programming idea is interesting to me. So I want to try this out. I want to make it work. And I couldn't get random numbers. That was my biggest hurdle at first. So I'd, I'd sit down for, for a bit, set it aside. It wasn't a big, important thing at the time. I was very into Vue. I was doing Views on Vue podcast at the time. But eventually it clicked, and I was able to get the Elm version going. And once I got over those initial hurdles of like random numbers and how to start moving units around and generate a grid and list.map, everything just clicked into place. And it was like, Elm is the thing. This is phenomenal. I am so happy here. This code is <laughs> so good. And that's an app I still touch. So all of the other versions of the game, I eventually coded myself into a corner and couldn't do anything with. But the Elm version, I'm continuing to tweak and modify and update as ideas pop into my head. So recently, I added some support for the audio API in JavaScript, which is pretty easy with Elm because it's just a port. But being able to tie it in so that the music changes at the right times is so nice in Elm because it's so, you can anticipate the right point. There's no chance of an accidental side effect triggering the wrong music or trying to play the same music twice or anything like that. Yeah, this, right. There's only one single point of like, okay, here's here's where the time, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, this is really interesting. So I guess I have had a an accidentally similar experience of like doing the same app multiple times, which was DreamWriter, this like novel writing software that I was making for myself. And I, originally I, I wrote it in like plain JavaScript, or no, plain CoffeeScript originally. Actually, that was the app that I tried CoffeeScript on originally. Was I was like, oh, I want to like make this thing. And I've heard CoffeeScript is cool. Eh, why don't I try it in CoffeeScript? And I liked it and yada, yada. And then I coded myself into a corner. 
rewrote it in React when React came out, coded myself into a corner again, and then Elm came out, actually rewrote it, actually was able to maintain it. But then I got so into Elm that I ended up like going on a like huge Elm tangent and like not writing any fiction <laughs> for years. Uh, I still haven't gotten back to it. I, I have like a friend who was like, I was like 80,000 words of this novel. And like periodically he still pings me. He's like, hey, when are you going to finish that? I, I liked the, you know, the first How Everybody chapters. I'm like uh, someday, someday. <laughs> we could form a writing club. I'm in the same boat. I'm sitting on a draft of a novel I wrote and have not made any progress on it in years. It became a conscious choice at some point. I think specifically around when Manning approached me about writing the book that ended up being known as Element Action. I was like, okay, I'm not what am I doing here? Am I am I really going to like finish this piece of fiction that like maybe one person really cares about, maybe two, or am I going to like write this book that a lot of people seem to have interest in? And I was like, okay, I should I guess I should jump on this opportunity <laughs> and work on Element Action instead. So at this point it's like I made a conscious decision to put it back on the shelf, but that wasn't how it started. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't the decision I made in like 2014 when I first got into Elm. But okay, so I'm, I'm curious about something else that you mentioned. So you talked about at first React didn't click, like when you were just doing the exercises. And then later on, when you were actually building a game, it did click. And I'm interested in this because something that I've noticed is that different people learn different things in different ways, like more or less effectively. And I'm curious if you think that at least for you and your experience, that learning by trying out building a thing is just like across the board more effective? Or was that maybe just a React specific thing? Or maybe it was like the way that the React material is being taught? Or what do you think? Like, what's your self analysis? I think for me, the big factor was I already had a model in my head for how reactivity worked. So when I started in React, it was, there's a bunch of functions and you have this state and you're using a class and you need to call set state. And there's these callbacks and there's these, there's all this stuff that you need to learn about JavaScript to make React work. That's on top of the fact that you need to understand you're building a reactive data model and a reactive interface that will be changing constantly as your, as your state changes. And in Vue, I didn't have to think about all this extra JavaScript bits. All I had to think about was I'm writing HTML here. I'm writing my JavaScript that's reactive here, and I'm writing my CSS just like I always would. So once I had that basic model of how a reactive user interface could be, I was able to then go back to React and say, okay, in Vue, I would do it this way. How do I do that in React? And have this tying between the two. And I actually had a similar experience with functional programming versus object-oriented. So I have a bachelor's degree in software development, and I attended a boot camp. And both of those experiences hit the nail really hard on object-oriented, solid principles, polymorphism, all of the things that you need to know to do object-oriented properly. And they taught it as, as gospel, right? Because this is the way you do programming. And it never made sense. And in all of those classes, I was just rolling my eyes thinking, who cares about polymorphism? I don't <laughs> care that the car is a vehicle. None of this makes sense. None of this seems valuable. I'm sure it will be eventually, but okay, I'll just repeat the answers and move on with life. And it really wasn't until I was working in Elm with modules and doing functional programming and I create my, I did this without thinking about it. I created my type and then I created my functions. And I looked at that and it was like, oh, a class is a module with a type and functions, except it's a <laughs> class. I get it now. And object-oriented suddenly made a lot of sense because I could I could understand functional programming. 
I don't know if that's common. I don't know if my approach to learning things is learn the, th the first thing first and it doesn't make sense. And then you learn the second thing and the first suddenly does. But that seems to be my way of learning is I ingest some knowledge and it makes zero sense, but I accept it as truth. And then I learn the second thing and I'm able to say, oh, this relates to the first thing in this way. Now they both make sense and I have a better understanding. Interesting. So that's how I ended up understanding monads. And I realized that like claiming to understand monads is like a risky thing to do because there definitely was a time in my career when I thought I understood monads. And then as an example of this, I was like with a coworker who actually understood what they were. And I was like, oh, I think, I think we use a monad for this. He's like, no, dude, that's just a fold for sure. And I was like, oh, well, if that's just a fold, then I don't understand monads. And then I very quickly realized, oh, I actually don't understand monads. I okay, I don't I don't know what I'm doing here. But the thing that actually eventually like made it click for me was no amount of tutorials. It was literally just I used Elm for a while, and at some point someone was like, Okay, all these things that have and then, that's the monad operation. The and then. That's it. That's that's the thing. If you got and then, and then you have okay, yes, you also need like a way to build one of those out of nothing, then you got a monad, like, you know, task.succeed or list.singleton or whatever. That's the pattern. That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> and okay, yes, there's like these laws and stuff, fine. But like the laws are basically just like you made a reasonable and then and not a ridiculous one that doesn't behave like and then normally behaves. And then later I was like, oh, and then join is equivalent to that. And I could like look at the types and be like, oh, neat. So if you have join, then you don't need like that serves the purpose of both of those. Cool. But before I'd actually tried it out and like, you know, gotten some, I don't know, familiarity with like the the operations in question, like, cause, and then is not really something you, you need a lot of in like JavaScript or, you know, Java or like, you know, these Perl, these languages I'd used before Elm, but then, you know, and then comes up in Elm and eventually I got some intuition for it. And I was like, oh, and then in map, this is just like a strictly more powerful version of map. Neat. And then at some point, I think it might've just been Evan who was like, here's the pattern. See, like all these things have and thens. That's their monads. <laughs> that's what that means. It means they have like and then and it, and it behaves like and then basically. I had read so many tutorials and like type classopedia and like all these things before then. And I just like never got it. I was pretty proud at some point, like years later after having done Elm for a couple of years, I went back and like reread type classopedia and was like actually understanding a lot more of it. I knew that I had like made some amount of progress and I submitted a bug fix. I found something that was like missing a type variable in like one of the, I don't even remember what section it was. And it's like type class speed had been out for years at that point. So it wasn't like, you know, there had been a small number of eyes on it. But like, I was like reading this paragraph and I was like, this, I feel like there should be another type variable here. And I think it should be this. And I like submitted it and like, oh yeah, you're right. And they fixed it. I was like, yes, all right, I'm getting stuff. But going back to your point, like you were commenting about like trying to learn the thing and being unsuccessful and then later on learning a different thing and then seeing how the two relate and coming back to the first thing. For me, that's in practice how I ended up learning about monads, trying to learn them, failing, <laughs> learning Elm, <laughs> and then going back and like seeing how to apply it. But I wonder in my case, if the first step was actually helpful, if the like trying unsuccessfully part, because I think really, if I had started with Elm, and then somebody had pointed out to me, by the way, now that you're, you know, conversant in this, and you've like used and then various different contexts, there's a pattern here, it's called monad. If somebody had just said that, I think I probably would have gotten it very quickly. Because humans are pretty good at spotting patterns with like things they're they're familiar with. And I think the thing that made it hard in the first place was that I didn't have any of the intuition because I just this is like a function I just was not used to using because I just didn't use it that much in JavaScript. So it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, and then I'm like, no, what is that? 
<laughs> like, let me stop you right there. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And, but then once I'd actually gotten used to using that function a bunch, then it's like, oh, there's the pattern in this thing you're already familiar with. But the key was, I think, was the familiarity, not that like, try an attempt to learn it, fail, and then learn a different thing and then, you know, come back to it. What do you think of that? I think that makes sense to me. Having gone the Elm and then learn about Monad approach, I agree that I'm not able to point them out nearly as easily. I know about the and then thing. Early at No Red Ink, I was in a meeting with a couple of folks and determined that monads are thenables, is how I refer to them in my head. So if you can then it, then it's a monad, I hope, is my base definition. So I look at JavaScript and think, okay, promises. That was my basis. Because with a promise, you like a fetch, you make a fetch and then you do something. And so it, it feels like a monad. I don't know if it actually is or not because JavaScript's weird, but it feels like a monad and it feels like a result because you have then and you have catch and they feel like it matches the result model where you can and then something. Yes. Funny story about JavaScript promises and being monads or not. So back in, oh man, I, I cannot remember what year this was. I want to say it was like 2012. This is before promises were actually in browsers and they were always uh, in user space libraries. And there was like, I want to say there was one called like Bluebell or Bluebird or something, something blue related. And another Bluebird word. Bluebird sounds familiar. Bluebird, I think. Yeah. And then there was like the promises slash A and A plus. I want to say A star, but that's not, that's a different thing. I think it was promises A plus was like a specification for promises. And they were trying to like get these standardized. And I remember reading this thread and they had a, a proposed spec for promises that was not monadic because although it had the right types, I think, I wouldn't swear to it, but I think it had the right types, but it didn't follow the laws for some reason or something like that. And Brian McKenna was very adamantly arguing, you're so close, just make it be a monad and you get all these properties, just tweak it this tiny little bit and then it'll be monadic and it'll be great. I don't remember the distinction of what it was, but there was a lot of pushback from the authors of the proposal. At some point, someone in the thread, I think, accused Brian of like, living in a functional programming fantasy land. And like over here in the real world, you know, we have to worry about these other things. And I think if I remember right, that based on that, Brian went and created a library called Fantasyland, which had monadic promises and a bunch of other stuff. And that's where that whole Fantasyland library came from. This is my recollection of how that went down. Because I remember like watching that thread in real time and being like, I don't know what any of this means, but I don't know. It seems like if you're close, why not get across the finish line and like get the get the properties. But what do I know? <laughs> that explains a lot about the name Fantasyland. I know I remember finding that library and being very confused. Of course, now with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back and say, well, clearly, like what I would have advised my past self is run away, go use Elm. <laughs> Don't worry about all this stuff. It's just your life will be so much better if you just like use a language that's like designed to like have everything work well together. But I didn't know that back then. Speaking of which, okay, so another thing I wanted to circle back to, you mentioned like taking a long time to learn how to do random number generation for the game you're making in Elm. And yeah, speaking of monads, I don't remember getting stuck on that in large part, I think, because as it happened, it was quite a long time into my time with Elm before I needed to generate random numbers. And so by the time I got there, I was like, oh, okay, this is like decoders, but you know, different. But I do remember very distinctly having a really bad experience. So I want to say this is 2015 and it was at Strange Loop. And there was a pre-conf day where they had a 
mob programming session for various different, like learn a new language through mob programming thing. And I forget which different languages they have, but one of them was Elm. And they were asking for volunteers, like, does anyone want to come and be like a resident expert for this language and to help out? And I was like, oh, sure, I'll hang out for the, the Elm one. And the rule was, as the resident expert, you're not supposed to chime in and like proactively help people. You're supposed to let the mob, even though nobody in the mob knows the language, they're supposed to like struggle through it on their own. And then if they need help, they can ask you for advice or something like that. So I'm supposed to be mostly silent unless people ask me for something. And then at the very beginning of this thing, they had a choice. Do you want to implement one of two programs? And one was, I want to say something to do with like Roman numerals, like translating Roman numerals to and from numbers or something like that. And then the other one was Game of Life. And they chose Game of Life in Elm, which means that you're doing not only random number generation, but also you're doing like array indexing into like a grid, like a, you know, rows and columns, which means that you're going to have to deal with a lot of maybes. And unlike in a imperative language where you could maybe just like reach in and mutate a particular like, you know, X by Y, just like square bracket indices, like at X at row and column, you know, change it to this. You can't do that. You have to like, iterate over the inner one and like get it out and then like, you know, mutate that, like do a lot of maps and, and stuff like that. And, and like indexed maps specifically in order to do. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, I know how to do this. They have no chance. Like there's no way, like this is like a completely inappropriate, like beginner Elm project, unless you're already very familiar with functional programming. This is just like, I was thinking, I was standing there, like watching them struggle, not being allowed to talk and just being like, I'm trying to think if there's a more pathologically difficult first like beginner project for like pure functional programming, if you've never done it before, then game of life. And I couldn't come up with anything. I think it's like the actual hardest, like it just has all the hardest things like among, you know, reasonable considered, you know, beginner friendly projects. It's just so much harder for so many reasons, if you're not already familiar with those things. And so I basically remember standing there and thinking like, nobody is going to want to use this language after this terrible experience they're having. And yet I was surprised that James Gray the notable Rubyist uh, who made like the CSV parsing library and Ruby and stuff. He was there and he actually ended up being intrigued enough that he ended up like getting into Elm. So there's something to be said for, I don't know, accepting the challenge and being like, despite the fact that I don't know what I'm doing or like, this is a lot harder than I'm used to just like persevering and, and sort of sticking with it and ending up being like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a real try. And then maybe ending up liking it after you get over whatever you were stuck on. Having done random numbers and a grid and having to do all the maps, I wrote my own find methods and everything on a grid. I can relate to that both sides. This is not appropriate for starting functional programming, but also once you get into it, it feels so good to work with. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> and that, that's the paradox. It's weird. The thing that I keep coming back to is that like reflecting on what really changed because a lot of people say like, oh, I'm like interested in functional programming. But, like, what's the pitch? Why would you say that it's good? And a lot of it comes down to for me, if I didn't know anything about programming and I were to evaluate the way I would have done things in like an imperative way versus in a pure functional way, I would end up saying the pure functional way seems simpler and generally has nicer invariants. I guess the randomness is not simpler, maybe. But certainly I like the way that the code ends up and I find it easier to understand, especially after the fact. But it's different. And so if I had learned pure functional programming first and then I went back and learned imperative, I think I would probably say things like 
random number generation seems more convenient here. Working with arrays, I would probably say feels, yeah, a little bit more convenient, but also it's kind of weird and unfamiliar to me as a pure functional programmer. Like if I can just go in and mess with stuff, it kind of reminds me of messing around with like registers in assembly, which is now something I've I've done more of than I ever had previously now that I'm getting into like some really low level stuff. But it's this thing where it just kind of makes me nervous. Like, I'm, I don't know, like, isn't the compiler supposed to deal with registers? Like, why am I in here with registers? Like, I'm, I'm going to break something. This is not comfortable to me. And I can acknowledge, like, there's a purpose to it. And there's like a reason, you know, sometimes like you need to like get in there, like actually mess around with registers. But, you know, in, in order to solve whatever problem you're working on. But as a general rule, I'm like, I'm just happier if the compiler takes care of that. And I think similarly, like if I were starting off with pure functional programming and being like, oh, you're just going to go in and directly mutate this thing. I'm like, okay, I could, but this makes me uncomfortable in the sense that like, why isn't the compiler taking care of that for me? I want to just say like, I had this value and now I have this new value and I'm going to forget about the old one. I'm just going to deal with the new one. I don't want to have to think about like, if I'm, am I accessing a version that's been mutated? Why is that a thing? I have this whole new set of worries now. Like, like time matters a lot more was, did I call this function sooner or later? Like, as opposed to just being like, well, you gave me this value. It's this thing forever. That's just what it is. As long as you gave it to me, I'm like, I got it. So if I had started out learning pure FP, I still don't think, you know, even for somebody who doesn't know programming that, that starting off with like random number generation and indexing into two dimensional arrays is a good. But I think that if I then went back, like after I'd gotten some familiarity and learned how to do game of life and the imperative thing, I would say like, okay, these are convenient, but like I not so much that I like want to switch, if that makes sense. I'll like give up all the things that I would have to give up to get those. Yeah. And I'm actually preparing to give a talk at a view conference talking about functional programming using Vue. And it's interesting to approach because Vue is very based on imperative programming and mutation. And that's how its reactivity system is built, is watching free mutations and then triggering a re-render. So it's it's this paradox of how do you avoid mutations while also doing mutations to make sure the thing re-renders. And it's been interesting to think about and approach because it's these two different worlds where one is it's very simple and it's very obvious how to make the thing do what you want, in this case, re-render or update your state. But in the other hand, coming from Elm and coming from functional programming at this point, it feels so unsafe. You're just passing <laughs> your variables everywhere. You're just letting your entire code access everything. Like that seems so dangerous. Right. Like, are you sure that's a good idea? Like, <laughs> yeah. At a previous job, I had debates. There was this more experienced programmer on the team, and we would get into debates about object oriented versus functional programming. This is as I was trying to learn Elm and as I was trying to explore FP more. And I was sharing some of the things that I had learned about what functional programming is and how we could use it and how it's specifically, I was pointing out that it's more testable because you don't need to worry about the internal state of, in this case, a view component. You just pass in some values and some HTML pops out. One of his base arguments was that in JavaScript, everything is in the browser. Everything should be accessible by everything else. You should be able to mutate anything at any time ever. And he saw that as a benefit, which was very interesting because I couldn't see it that way. I was coming at it from the functional programming approach, but for him, having the restriction on what data was accessible where was a downside. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it speaks to how he came into programming and how he learned all of these different techniques. 
So I'd be very curious. I don't expect there are any boot camps going straight into pure FP and teaching Haskell and Elm, although that would be cool. Yeah, I, I don't think those exist. <laughs> I would be fascinated to learn what it's like for somebody brand new to programming to just do pure FP and then be introduced to imperative. Yeah, I think it really depends in significant part on what language and both sides, honestly, because I mean, let's be honest, I don't think that JavaScript is the most user friendly imperative language to get into either. Mm, not so much. No. <laughs> if you were like, let's dive into pure functional programming in Idris. And then like, well, or Haskell, for that matter, there's just like a lot to learn compared to something like Elm or <laughs> once it's ready, rock. So I think there's definitely a lot of confounding variables there. It's not just about paradigm, because I can't really think of any languages where it's like this language and this language are the same in every respect, except that one of them is pure functional, one is imperative. There's just so many other things going on that it's, it's kind of hard to, to compare at that simple level. But I mean, I guess when you get down to it, there, there are some things that are some things that are obviously nicer and some things that are obviously harder. And it's definitely the case in my mind that something like yeah, two-dimensional array access is like a little bit harder Random number generation is like significantly harder, but what that buys you is this global set of things that are easier. It's a lot harder to paint yourself into a corner and like to enter to code yourself into a corner and to end up feeling like I don't know what to do with this code base anymore <laughs> because, and I think partly it, it comes down to modularity in the sense of like, as a tangent, I've been thinking about this word modularity and it almost feels like a better word in software might be compartmentalization even though it's longer, because I think because modules these days are often conflated with just like files, it doesn't really carry the same weight that it used to. But I, I think the idea of modularity originally as the term was originally used in like the 70s, maybe in the programming language modula, for example, was about boundaries and about saying like this module or this like, you know, compartmentalized thing is like a black box. And it exposes only these things, but like you can't peek in and mess with the internals or look at the internals. And that has pros and cons. The big pro is that it can then change its internals without breaking the rest of the code base, which means that you don't have to worry about all the complexity of all your dependencies. You just have to worry about the complexity of the interfaces of all your dependencies if done properly. And then the downside is that if one of those internals, if the interface doesn't expose something that you think that you really need, then you just can't have it until you get the author of that module to, you know, expose it, which maybe you do or do not have access to depending. But to me, that's really like conceptually, the, the word I think of is compartmentalization. It's about like breaking things down into little compartments that are like isolated from one another. And like, maybe have like some very tiny interface between them. I'm going to put on my view framework hat for a minute. Okay. What if we called those components? That's another word I've heard for it. Yeah. I was watching this interview with Brad Cox, who made Objective-C, and he was talking about like how he he's a big believer in like componentization of software. And what he meant by that is not necessarily, well, as far as I can tell, was not something specific to like UIs. Because usually when I hear the word component, I think about it in terms of like user interfaces. It's kind of like the modern word for like widget, sort of, but like it, I guess, like has some API connotations there that are different from widget APIs used to be. Objective-C was not originally like a language designed for building UIs. It was just like a general purpose, do whatever kind of language. And so when he's talking about that, I think what he's talking about is modularity or compartmentalization or whatever. And like being a big believer in like 
off the shelf stuff where you you have like an interface and then yeah and then this also gets into the object oriented version of that where it's sort of like a more specific version of modularity where it's like module is something that like exposes an interface and then hides its internal implementation details and then an object is that but also specifically with internal mutable state as like part of the things that it's hiding which i'm very not sold anymore on that being a good idea but <laughs> it was like like you're saying a pervasively popular idea to the point where apparently both computer science programs and bootcamp programs programs in the sense of like curricula are teaching it as gospel still yep that's true i really like the idea of breaking things into bits well i'm just going to use bits instead of modules or components or whatever. i like the idea of breaking things down into bits and I like having those bits organized around a single structure of some sort, be that HTML that comes out at the other end or a type system or something. One of the things I feel that is muddling this conversation a little bit is the modern front-end frameworks like Angular, React, Vue, Svelte, solid to an extent, although they talk about how their components disappear at runtime. All of these have components but they're so focused around components that it becomes the thing you're building as opposed to the application that you're actually wanting to write. So I've been rewriting a Vue application as a side project into Elm. In this side project, I was using Vuex, and then I was using this other library, Vuex ORM, on top of it that adds some database feel to your global state management, which is really cool. But what I realized is that I had my types over here in one set of files, and I had my views over here in another set of files. And they kind of mixed because I needed to call the types and their methods in the views. But it's this, these two different concepts. And the entire framework of view in this case is designed around building these single file components and putting everything into components. And then you need a global state management. Whereas the version I was able to write in Elm, I have I still I still have two sets of files. I have my pages, which are Elm files that are calling out two types. And I have the, the types themselves which are their own modules. So let's let's just use to-do as an example. I have a to-do type, and I've got its decoder, and I've got its encoder, and I've got a function that generates a new one, and then I've got a handful of utility functions on top of it, and I'm able to put the view function and a list view function all in the same module. And that feels like this nice mixture of what view offers. Whereas in view, I have to have the two completely separate, and I've got a whole bunch of view single file components to do the view. But in Elm, I'm able to have the views and the type and the functions and everything in a single module because it all relates to that one singular type. And that just feels really comfortable compared to what the modern JavaScript frameworks are offering in terms of componentization. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So, okay, so one thought is that a really good example of what you're talking about, I think, is let's say that you're implementing dropdowns from scratch. Like you don't have a browser primitive for them. You're making your own custom dropdown. So the, let's call it eagerly componentized things, where like you're trying to split everything off into components, modules, whatever, where they're all like independent, especially if you want them all to be responsible for their own state as like a, this is how we're starting out, not where we maybe ended up because we thought it was a good idea. Well, one of the rules of dropdowns is only one of them at a time on the screen should be open. Like if I click on one dropdown to open it and then before I close it, I click on another dropdown. The first one ought to close automatically, which means that forget any programming technology. 
just the business rules say that they're coupled. They're all coupled. Every dropdown on the page is coupled to one another just by the rules of that UI design. Well, if you have two different, let's call them objects that are coupled, now you have to have them communicate to one another. And if they're in a tree of tree of objects, they're not just sort of like free floating with like pointers to one another or like references to one another. Then you get into the classic term parent-child communication. Like how do you communicate across these parts of a tree when they don't have direct pointers to one another? That gets really challenging and like pretty painful and also pretty error prone because if any one of them doesn't know about one of the other dropdowns that's been created in the world, then they just can't close it when they're open. It's really unnecessarily difficult compared to having, and and this is how, if I'm implementing a dropdown in Elm, how I would just do it is you have one atomic, like global application state. And the way that you do modularity is by like slicing off pieces of that, like pulling off things into other modules and like giving them like calling their functions, passing some subset of the application state, possibly, you know, modifying it or whatever. And in that world, all of these functions, like the dropdown, you know, rendering function is just like, tell me if I'm open or not. And it's not up to me whether or not I'm like, quote unquote, in charge of my state. I'm just like a function that's like, tell me whether or not I'm, I'm open right now at this moment. And that means that the fact that they're all coupled by the business logic is not a problem because you can just represent like at the root at the application state, you can just say, I have an ID of which dropdown is open or not. And then when I'm calling each of these functions, I just say, is the ID of the one that's open equal to this one's ID? And I can just assign them IDs as I create them. And that's it. That's the whole calculation. It's like really straightforward. There's zero chance that you'll ever have multiple dropdowns open on the page at once because you you literally only store an ID or like an optional ID of like which one's open if, if any one of them is open. So you will never possibly just by virtue of your data model end up in a world where two dropdowns are open at the same time. And you don't have to write a bunch of like communication logic between them. You just, when you're rendering them, you check this one equality check. <laughs> is, is your ID equal to the, the one that we've stored for which one's open? This gets into like a broader question, which is, I don't have like a catchy, I don't know, a phrase for this, but I've noticed that there are two implicitly competing software philosophies. And one philosophy is start with everything sort of global and maybe monolithic and like all put together where everything can see everything else. And then when you notice pieces that seem to be isolatable, you split those off and modularize them and like hide implementation details and so forth versus you start by assuming you're going to know where the right boundaries should be and modularize up front. And before you've written anything, you start off with just being like, I need to make everything be its own self-contained thing. And let's figure out what the self-contained things are first and then wire them all up together. So everything is always a small self-contained thing as opposed to starting big and then slicing off, you know, as you go. This applies to a lot of different areas of software. One of the, the big ones that comes to mind is microservices. Microservices being the approach of let's eagerly like componentize our infrastructure and like split things off into small pieces. My conclusion is that that approach across the board is wrong. It creates a ton of problems and maybe it sounds like a good idea in theory, but I, I just don't, I, I think in object orientation, it's wrong. And I think in microservices, it's wrong. And everywhere that I've seen that strategy applied of like eagerly componentizing or eagerly modularizing and doing everything that way, as opposed to 
starting with just like let's let everything see everything else and then slice off small pieces or let's start with one monolithic service and then when we discover a need for a smaller service based on infrastructure needs let's slice that off that just seems to work better to me as long as i I guess i should point out as long as the cost of making changes like that is reasonable if you don't have like a programming language or an infrastructure environment that makes like making those refactors and redrawing those boundaries relatively easy and not error prone if it is difficult and error prone then okay that's that's a different story but anyway curious what you think about that it sounded vaguely like you were describing the life of a monolith to, <laughs> to borrow evan's talk life of a file yeah okay yeah everything lives in this global environment be it an application be it a module be it whatever and then you slowly break things off i can see that I feel like I fall a little bit more on the eager breaking things off because I can. I have this vision of what the long term is going to be, and I, I feel like I can make reasonable assumptions about what maintainability is going to look like long term. But that said, like I'll use Elm as my example. If I'm creating a new module, I often will export everything initially and then scope it down once I prove my case. Even though it's all in separate files and separate modules, it's still that idea of everything is global, everything is available, do whatever you need. I like that approach, especially when it comes to services. When I was working as a primarily backend developer, we ran into a handful of cases. We had we had our main backend service. Somebody needed something new, and it was obvious that putting it on this main backend service was the wrong decision. So at that point, we were able to spin something off, but we didn't go into it initially planning to spin something off. Or conversely, we had this administrative tool that needed to access the database. And we made a conscious decision not to spin off a separate microservice just to access the database because we already had one that accessed the database. It was the the main backend. Didn't feel a need to do anything complex or create a new service just for that. And I think both when it comes to microservices and to a lesser extent, but I think still with a lot of commonality when it comes to objects, there's a pretty substantial communication overhead that you're buying into whenever you like split one of these things off. So you better have a good reason for it. And I, I think that's more true when it when it comes to state, like with objects, than it is if you're just like, for example, if you have some functions that are working on like a data type, you can move those into like another module, probably without changing any of the surrounding code, really. I mean, it's just like, a, it's like almost like a namespace move. And really the only thing that you're doing there is sort of confirming where the dependencies actually are. Like this code is actually not dependent on any of these implementation details because I was able to move those into this other module and hide them and everything still worked. So in that sense, it's like, it's not really introducing a lot of overhead or maybe even any overhead. It's almost like writing down a stricter type. It's like when, you know, you say like, oh, this thing, well, I guess actually a better example would be a a more parametric type as Hardy Jones would say, where like, you know, you write down, I had this function that was taking a list of strings and returning a whatever. Now that argument is no longer a list of strings. It's a list of anything. And that tells me that, oh, I'm actually not, I'm not really dependent on the contents of this list. I need some sort of list, but like it, it doesn't actually need to be strings specifically. That tells me something more specific about like how I'm using this thing. Like what, what about this list do I actually depend on? And similarly, like modularity can do that same kind of thing. But when there's state involved, there's a lot more coordination when there's infrastructure involved there's way more coordination it still kind of blows my mind that i don't know in like the microservices discussion there's i guess like the cost assigned to or like implicitly assigned to like doing this splitting off seems to be 
considered pretty low. And in my mind, it's astronomically high. I don't understand where, where that gap comes from. It's like coordinating between two running services is like just innately full of complexity that coordinating within a single service just does not exist. And the idea of like, I've heard the phrase, if it hurts, do it more. That makes sense if doing it more actually makes it hurt less. But I don't think when it comes up, it's like, if it adds more complexity, do it more. That's not good advice, I don't think. And this is, in my mind, like what what we're talking about. It's like (laughs) adding more complexity eagerly for the sake of some benefits that I don't think really measure up to to those costs. And at the end of the day, breaking things down into these bits makes the value of a type system, for example, break down on its own because you have to mentally track all of these different bits. So if I have this main application and then I have this other microservice that calls this other microservice that calls this one database that is actually reliant on a second database, I don't know why, I'm just making something complex. You're now having to track all of these dependencies in your head when you make that call as opposed to everything being in this central location. And then you can just rely on that central location either working or not, but all the code is in one place. All of the understanding is in one place and it can be, it can still be separated by a strong type system and by limited APIs between all of these different modules, but the mental overhead is significantly less. Mental overhead is a good way of thinking about it. It's like, is this a change that's going to increase or decrease the amount of like mental overhead associated with like using this thing or calling this function or working with this data type? In the case of something like objects or microservices, I guess because there's all this implicit state that I kind of need to know about, like I need to know what this what state it's in in order to like use them properly. And in the case of infrastructures, it might even just be state in the sense of like what version is deployed or what version of, I guess I care about what version is deployed because I care about whether it knows how to respond to my requests or what version of you know, responses it's going to give me. Or do I not need to worry about that because it's just ordinary stateless function calls. There's definitely ways that it can be helpful and reduce mental overhead. And I tend to think of that in terms of hiding being the value there, like just saying like, okay, these are things that I can't worry about because they're not even accessible to me. Whether or not my code is working cannot really depend on them. Or whether I'm actually, like you said, racking up more and more things that I need to keep in my head in order to figure out like whether my code's going to work the way I think it does. And usually that comes down to implicit hidden state as opposed to implicit hidden code and like implementation details. And that distinction is pretty subtle, but seems to make a pretty big difference in terms of whether splitting things up like this makes it easier or harder to understand the system. Wow, we ended up talking about a lot. I didn't anticipate the conversation was going to go here, but (laughs) it was some pretty cool stuff. Anything else we should make sure to talk about? I've had this question. It's been kind of bubbling in my head. And this this relates to how I came into programming. Hopefully, we have enough time to touch on it, at least briefly. Kind of talking about these two inverse lines of thinking of how to build an application. It's global state versus, or not global state. Everything is global, and then you slice things off versus everything is containerized and very small. And then you slowly expand it out from there if needed. I've noticed because of how I came into programming with HTML, CSS, and PHP specifically, those were my first three uh, technologies, that I have this approach where I tend to start on the back end and I make sure I can access my database and I have my data available. And then I build out my API so that that data can get to the front end. And because I spend a lot of time in the JavaScript ecosystem uh, and the front end space in general, I see 
the opposite a lot where people start in the front end and they build their UIs and they build their interfaces and then they build the backends and then, or and maybe they're mocking their APIs until the backend is ready, something like that. So I feel like there's these two ways of building an application where it's either back to front or front to back. I feel like depending on which one of those you prefer, it lends itself towards other decisions. So if you're, if you're doing back to front, you tend to refer more to using Redis or, or some other caching, building up your data, stitching everything together as much as you can, and then just sending more like a, a view model to the front end. Whereas if you're front to back, you're typically expecting your backend to be just an API to your database. You get your data, you send it to the front end, you do all of your transformations in the front end, in the client. And that leads itself to, to different decisions and different needs. Your backend can be lighter, it can be more performant and fewer resources, but all of your cost is then on your network calls. I'm curious if you've ever thought about this, if, you lo- if you've looked at this at all, and how you would say you yourself approach building an application. That's a great question. So the way I think about it is from a design perspective, like before I've written any code, I always think about start with the user experience I want and work backwards from there, like to how to get it. Because the alternative is I start building stuff and then I end up with like whatever user experience then I maybe am or I'm not happy with it. I always want to start with like, well, what's the goal state in terms of UX? And then starting with that as my constraints for like how I'm going to develop the system. Where I go to after having designed what's the UX that I want, and granted, like depending on where I'm working, that may or may not be just me or, you know, like as a tiny startup, maybe that's me or like, you know, if I'm working on a side project or something, that's just me, but maybe that's in collaboration with other people. But I always want to start from there. Then if it's just me programming on it, let's say, you know, again, side project or whatever, I will usually try to start with the part that I'm most afraid of not working. Like, for example, I'm like, I have this user experience in mind, but in order to achieve this user experience, these things have to be true. So quite often there's a performance thing where I'm like, okay, in order for this to work in real time and not feel terrible, I need to be able to do this in this amount of time. That could be anywhere. It could be something like I'm worried about like rendering this many things on the screen and it being too slow. So in that case, I might just completely forget about the back end and just try to render that many things on the screen and see if see how slow it is. It's like assuming I got the data, how fast is the rendering? Or conversely, it might be I need to talk to these several third-party APIs. Can I do that fast enough? Or I need to collect all this data from the database in this amount of time. Can I do that without, you know, like the indices not, you know, totally blowing up and making inserts take forever? So whichever aspect of that I think is going to be slowest, or I guess now in the case of like compilers, often it's like, I don't know, can I possibly link fast enough or <laughs> something like that? Not that you have any experience with that recently. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, linkers are a, are a whole thing. But the reason that I want to go for that thing that I think is sort of like the riskiest or like the most, the biggest chance of making it impossible to achieve the user experience I want is that if it turns out that my UX constraints are not actually satisfiable, I want to know that as soon as possible so that I can tweak the design and say like, well, I thought I was going to be able to go for this, but it turns out that's just not possible because I have this bottleneck here that I can't fix or whatever. Or maybe it's just like, 
it's possible to achieve this, but it would take me so long. I'm just, just not, it doesn't make sense to go for it. Like I don't have five years to stop and rewrite a blah into, you know, like whatever library from scratch to make it like fit my goals. I need to change what my goal is because otherwise this is just, this project's not happening. So I always want to do the, the sort of the riskiest things up front so that I can basically, the goal is to, for me to get to a state where I'm like, okay, all the rest of this stuff, I'm confident will work out. It's just a matter of like time and applying myself to them. But now I've eliminated the riskiest parts of this project and or revised my goal design to accommodate them. And now I'm just like, cool. Now I'm I'm just on low risk implementation mode and I can just kind of jam from there. And then from there, whether I start with front end or back end next, I guess, has more to do with what I happened to do previously and what makes sense as the next like logical point to pick up. But that's my process, but I'm sure others have different ones. <laughs> I agree with designing for the the user interface first and getting getting something, get the plan in place for what you actually want to build so that the user can achieve whatever it is you want them to achieve. That said, after I have I've gotten that far and I've broken down everything into the different tasks, let's let's pretend that we're doing some kind of project management, even if it's a side project. I tend to start more on the database layer and accessing data. Because I don't like mocking. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, especially when I'm the only one working on it, so side projects specifically, me spending the time to mock the data that I'm getting from an API could have been better spent just writing the API. And when I'm working on a project by myself, I have that flexibility of, oh, my data isn't working out right. I'm going to stop here and fix the data, fix whatever performance issue I'm seeing. From that perspective, I tend to architect things from a back to front perspective. I try as much as possible to put the burden on the server rather than the client because I want to make as few API calls as possible and I want to send the minimal amount of data required and nothing more. Both from a security standpoint, you don't want to send user password hashes by mistake, but also being respectful of the user's network connection. Maybe they're on a 3G phone connection out in the middle of nowhere, or maybe they have data caps or something. That's how I try to approach building an API and building out a new feature or a new functionality on an app is being conscious of what data restrictions I have on the end user and acting accordingly based on that, which still comes back to the design and what expected user experience there is. I think that's my general approach. Yeah. So the commonality there is the like figuring out constraints and like building based on that. But I understand like having a preference for <laughs> for the data modeling route, certainly like in the small, like wherever whatever I'm working on, I, I tend to these days start with the data model, like for whatever part of the stack I'm, I'm working on and then kind of work out from there. A lot of times it seems like once I figure out the data structures, everything else kind of is a lot easier and, and follows more naturally from that. But granted, I have discovered that in some cases, especially when it comes to compiler stuff, it's more like there's some sort of algorithm that's necessary in order to get the answer. And there are actually multiple different data structure ways to implement that algorithm and they have potentially vastly different performance characteristics but that hasn't been true of like most of the application development i've done to be fair so i think compilers are a little bit unusual in that regard in terms of like how performance tends to shake out in comparison to how performance tends to shake out in other projects i've worked on but anyway yeah interesting topic we could probably go into that for a whole other episode if we wanted to (laughs) i'm sure we could (laughs) and maybe we should Okay, should we wrap it up there? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And yeah, we'll we'll 
have to circle back to a future discussion on, on data modeling and so forth. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was happy to be here. <laughs>